ladies and gentlemen, Greg Cruz. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Proop cats and proop kittens, proop castilians, and all those with proop in their title. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Vodcast, takes to the air. Here from the sunny, salubrious, illegal alcohol-serving climes of the Hudson Theater, the Comedy Central uh, Theater at the Hud- at the space at the Hudson at Camden Yards, here in Los Angeles, uh, in Western Hollywood, in the salubrious theater district, where there's far too much creativity penetrating the very bricks of this building here. With wonderful, deathless ditties, we build up the world's great cities, and out of a fabulous story, we fashion an empire's glory. Yes, it's time to occupy the podcast right now here, as uh, once again, we take to the ether and take to the air. And as one fellow said to me a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, uh, uh, thanks for the great podcasting, and I said, just do me a favor, keep them flying. Uh, so welcome back, one and all, to the podcast, Boys and Girls and Cats and Kittens. It hopes to be an illuminating night of both satire and comedy. Uh, we uh, left off, I was talking to a young man out in the uh, lobby area here, and he said to me, hey, are you going to go on that high level of shit like you did when you were talking about, you know, all, all that history and whatnot? And I was like, honey bear, we start at the top and we move downward. You're lucky I don't start with fucking Ramesses or Ozymandias. Look upon my work, she mighty in despair. The only thing that keeps me from indulging is that I want people to listen ever to the show. <laughs> because he, what was the, what did you bring up to me? Which historical topic was it? Oh, yes, the Pantheon, which I had mistaken in Rome for something else, and someone said it was the Forum. The domed structure that's the most famous concrete structure in Rome built by Hadrian around 126. And it was like, well, I said, did you hear about the, King, the Queen Zenobia episode? Because that was a cracker. Um, this is something I wanted to cover from weeks ago that I had never got back to. I had mentioned when we did the show at Meltdown Comics, um, someone had asked me a Churchill question. And the question was, would I want him or someone else uh, to do the fighting? I can't remember if it was another president or something, uh, or Bush or something. And I said Churchill had been in the, in the army, which he had been, as well as a variety of other things. And he had performed in the last cavalry charge in the history of the British Empire. Drink. Well, I, uh, I had gotten the date wrong on it. And it is, in fact, the Battle of Am German near Khartoum, uh, 2 September 1898, under the command of the very famous Lord Kitchener. Um, Here's from his personal journal, because Churchill, as you know, wrote voluminously, Histories of England, also a painter of some caliber, and I'm not going to say the caliber of the painting he was from. <laughs> Let me just put it this way. He was like that guy on PBS who goes, and then you just want to take the sponge, and then I guess I'm, I'm going to stippling this. That's going to give you the reeds. Uh, and then with the river, you're just going to want to... He's got that weird mic like he's in uh, uh, Year of the Dragon, or what was the, what was the Michael Cimino film where they with Kurt Russell where the Chinese gangs were fighting each other. And the guy talked like this because he had the horrible... He's got one of those microphones. Uh, thanks for nobody having my back on that. Just please sit in the darkness there. Big trouble in Little China. Big trouble in Little China. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All of a sudden, I was in Cleveland again where the crowd sat stunned and silent because I used polysyllabic words up front and talked about Hadrian at a comedy show. Here we go. 
Churchill's last cavalry charge, as I said, um, now this is Wikipedia that I looked up ever so briefly here. I'd looked it up before on a better site. As you know, Wikipedia, um, almost completely made up. It really is. It's, a, it's like watching the Republican debates or whatever. They're like, you know, in 1543, the Munchkins led a charge against the Japanese because the Confederacy was about to fight the Battle of Antietam. And you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? Black cherries were invented to keep ponies on track. No, they weren't. The avocado was originally used as not only a bomb, but a doorstop. You see... In ancient Sumeria, you're like, nobody checks anything that's on Wikipedia. Uh, I have a Wikipedia bio that is hilarious. Honestly, I didn't know I was Chancellor of Germany. One. Two. I've never flown a dirigible in my life, much less repaired them on a regular basis. Um, So it is really, it is really wild. And, and, And if you try to correct... Uh, Wikipedia and send them a thing because occasionally I'll have not I won't do it because I have a life and shit to do and and friends and 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 bags of weed at home to get through so I my agenda is chock-a-block from the moment I get up in the morning until I put the kittens to bed at night and, and finish taking the brownies out of the oven my day you know I'm pressing flowers all morning I have lots to do I gather nuts in May. I I hearken the squirrels unto me at one point for the noon feeding and whatever. Sometimes I lead the trout in synchronized swimming. I got, I am busy is what I'm saying, but I have agents. And when I say agents, I mean people from the matrix with sunglasses on who go to Wikipedia. And I, every once in a while, every two years or so, I'll go, why don't you actually give them my bio and I'll write it because I know what I did and where I was born and stuff. Even though, no, I don't remember it. Yes, I was there and I heard about it later. Uh, and, the, and they still, no, no, they won't accept what you send them. They'd rather have the erroneous shit that people who live in double wide trailers in some sort of spurious meth lab out in the desert who have nothing to do all day long but fuck with the internet connection and illegally obtain cable uh, through a series of weird transistors and shit that they've stolen off telephone poles over the last 45 years and raise an iguana named Chuck to spin backwards and do jokes and whatnot. And heaven knows what they're getting up to out there. I know they've got things like giant bags of chow. You know what I mean? Like, these are the kind of people, they have blue buckets in the yard. Why? Those are the people who are keeping the facts from uh, Wikipedia, in my opinion. Them and Jill, uh, Julian Assange. Now, here's the, what it says uh, about the, uh, the battle uh, uh, at Ab I'm German. The battle took place, blah, 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 blah. Kitchener commanded a force of 8,000 British regulars, regulars and a mixed force of 17,000 Sudanese and Egyptian soldiers. Blah, blah, blah. Um, the dervishes. That's where it gets sexy. Because they were fighting. The cavalry was on either flank. Al-Tashi's followers, uh, sometimes referred to as the dervishes. Um, fuck it. Let's call them the dervishes. That's what makes it fun. Like the, any fun in the British Empire that you're going to get from the carnage and genocide and imperialism, the fun is in the names. Um, like uh, uh, the, the, the Fuzzy Wuzzies and uh, the, the Black Hole of Calcutta. That's when it gets good. I mean, otherwise it's just um, white people oppressing people of color who have better clothes than them. Uh, they numbered 50,000, including 3,000 cavalry. da dee da dee da The battle began in the early morning at 6 a.m. Well, I should bloody hope so. First of all, fighting at night is a fruitless task, one. Alexander the Great detested fighting at night because, one, I felt it was like stealing a battle. And secondly, um, there was confusion, let's be honest. You start fighting at night, all of a sudden, bang. Oh, dude, I forgot. You're my friend. Uh, so that can happen. 
There was, of course, because it's 1898, mad armament. I mean, you know, the whole point of 19th century war is that they had mad, mad armament. They could shoot half a mile with accuracy. They had giant cannons. They had major explosives. They had telegraph. Uh, they, they had so many modern things, photography and whatnot, uh, re reconnaissance with balloons and everything. And yet they considered and continued and cared, uh, carried on fighting like it was 1754, you know, they, they formed squares, they stood in front of each other. No business does anyone have having cavalry in 1898. Um, uh, Kitchener was anxious to occupy Omdurman for the remaining Ansar, that would be dervishes to you, forces. After a fierce clash, the Lancers drove them back. Three Victoria Crosses were awarded. That sexy. Uh, because the Victoria Cross, as you know, uh, was the highest achievement in wiping other people out. Uh, like the, medical, the Medal of Honor, it's their equivalent, right? D, 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 D. In any case, 10,000 Ansar were killed, 13,000 wounded, 5,000 taken prisoner. And this is where history gets good, particularly on the Wikipedia. Kitchener's force lost 47 men. All right, all right, let's just stop right there. No fucking way on earth did you fight a battle with that many troops and lose... And this is why I love history. Because, as I've said before, history is a series of lies repeated by white guys. And... If I have never heard a bigger fucking lie than that one. 382 wounded. So you're telling me you killed 10,000 dervishes and wounded 13,000 and took 5,000 prisoner. I can count. That's 28,000 dervishes. You lost 47 guys and 382 were wounded. And then what? You made tea and had bickies and shit like that? You had somebody run up a flag? You, what did you do? Polish the buttons on your uniform the rest of the day? You must have had a whole afternoon to get through after wiping them out and losing five fucking guys. <laughs> Kitchener was ennobled as a baron. Kitchener of Khartoum. Uh, four Victoria Crosses. D -d 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 -d. Uh, Winston Churchill was present at the battle and he rode with the 21st Lancers. His book is called The River War, an account of the reconquest of the Sudan, which is the basis for this article. Yep. Basis. Basis. I have a life and an actual biography. That's the basis of my Wikipedia page. And yet my name is Fred and I'm from Belgium. Here's part of that. Uh, and this is what, this is what makes it uh, exciting that Winston Churchill's first person account. Mind you, he was quite young then. What did he die in, like 64? Uh, we were alone together, the cavalry regiment and the dervish brigade. The ridge hung like a curtain between us and the army. Mm -hmm. Good writing so far. Uh, the general battle was forgotten as it was unseen. This was a private quarrel. Are you getting the picture? They met a unit of dervish on their own, the Lancers. Uh, the other might have been a massacre, but here, was the, here the fight was fair. The other being the battle we just discussed a minute ago, the one where 28,000, 13,000, 23,000 casualties, 5,000 uh, prisoners, and the British sustained a bent teapot and, and my sash was soiled lightly. I lost a feather off of my hat, Watkins. Go find that plume, you. Here is, uh, the fight was fair, for we, too, fought with sword and spear. Hmm. So dig, a lancer, right, has a giant lance uh, and a sword. The spears, their lance, which were exceedingly long, with the, you know, the weird pikey hook on the end and whatnot. I'm guessing they're wearing that while well, they're in Khartoum in Sudan. Probably a little bit lighter uniform, although you know the English, right? When you see the Zulu ones, they're fighting in full-on red tunic, wool tunic, buttoned up. They don't get, you know, they're crazy. That's why they won. Their insanity trumped natives' people's fucking common sense. 
No native person would fight in a red wool tunic buttoned up with brass buttons. They'd wear a grass skirt and a fucking mask and shit like that and have a leopard head on like a regular person. Uh, indeed, the advantage of ground and numbers lay with them. Mm. Uh, which makes a better story anyway. One, but still, I believe him. All prepared to settle the debate. Mm, that's, that's awesome. Uh, the debate. How English is that? Not the bloodthirsty war we were about to stick each other with fucking lances in each other's face, but we were settling a debate. At once and forever. But some realization of the cost of our wild ride began to come to those who were responsible. Rider, and this is where the carnage begins, but we don't say carnage because we're British. Riderless horses galloped across the plain. Men clinging to their saddles lurched helplessly about, covered with blood from perhaps a dozen wounds. Horses streaming from tremendous gashes limped and staggered with their riders. In 120 seconds, five officers, 66 men, and 119 horses out of less than 400 had been killed or wounded. The dervish line, broken by the charge, began to reform at once. Uh... I think that's as good a first-person account of a cavalry charge as uh, anything you're going to read. I, I think a lot of the humor uh, in this show might have died along with that charge just now. <laughs> I think I'm the first one to admit it. Uh, but I, I, I felt like I had to uh, go back and touch on that one again. Last week's show we did from Cleveland, and I was just kidding about the audience there. They were perfectly charming. I had a wonderful time in Cleveland. The people were so nice. As someone once said to me in the Midwest when I told them they were so nice, they went... That's why they call it the heartland. And a horrible, horrible, salty, bitter, saline tear filled with ferrous iron rolled down my cynical ass face. <laughs> Cleveland, I wouldn't go quite that far. It is Ohio, after all. It's not exactly the Midwest. It's like the Midwest near a lake. Uh, but they were dead nice. And um, we, I made a few mistakes, as one does. And as, again, as I've said, being the smartest man in the world on this proofcast, or vodcast, if you will. Um, I'm, one, I'm not above admitting them, and two, I'm coming to you for answers. Here's one that I made that I think was so glaring that I can't believe I didn't get a thousand emails instead of just the two angry tweets. Um, I insisted that the movie with Dana Andrews, Gene Tierney, and Vincent Price, the question was, what's your favorite Vincent Price movie? And I suggested, along with the 375 million pictures that Vincent Price made, he was in a lot of Hollywood pictures before he became in essence, the King of Hawa. And one of those is a very legitimate picture by Preminger called Laura. I called it Gilda. Uh, Gilda was directed by King Vidor, uh, came out a couple of years after Laura, and is, uh, I, I think I like Gilda better than Laura. I think my wife certainly likes Laura better than Gilda. Gilda is an awesome movie. Glenn Ford as one of these, you know, in the 40s, this is what I love about 40s pictures and black and white movies. Everyone acts like a grown-up. You go to see a movie now, and Owen Wilson and Reese Witherspoon, who are like 50, are going like, <laughs> and you're like, no. First of all, I don't know if you saw the one where Reese Witherspoon was an athlete and Owen Wilson was a baseball pitcher. Owen Wilson's 45 years old. In what league are you a baseball pitcher? There isn't like a senior circuit and shit like that. Yes, there's a senior circuit, but I don't mean a senior citizen circuit in baseball. We don't have an over 40 group that plays baseball. That's what I love about movies. And every Jennifer Aniston movie, she's in her 40s now, and God bless her, we're all old. The thing is, she's still like, I'm a kooky waitress who doesn't know which way my life is going. Isn't it crazy that I can't control my emotions? And you're like, if you're 45 and still acting that way, one, you live in Hollywood. 
Because it means you're emotionally stunted, have no relationships in your life, and are, are, are probably the most selfish, self-absorbed person that ever lived. Or two, it's a movie. Because I guarantee you, if you drive five miles outside of Los Angeles, you'll find where real people live uh, who have kids when they're 16, not when they're 50, and get over themselves emotionally at a certain point in their life. The most important thing in their life is not to check their tweets while they're turning left on Crescent Heights. <laughs> And endanger everyone's fucking life, right? I mean, if I could count the times. So in the old pictures, people in their 20s act like they're 50 years old, like they're over it and jaded. Everyone's lighting up smokes and drinking. I don't know how old Rita Hayworth is in the picture, her 20s. She's been through the goddamn a block around she has been. Glenn Ford as well. Glenn Ford gets a job with George McCready. Now, to describe George McCready to you, I don't even know where to begin um, he's hawkish, he's ferret-like, he has a receding hairline and a scar over one eye that he got in a car accident that, of course, in his awesome studio bio, they say he got in a duel. Now, the thing that you'll remember most about George McCready is if you watch Perry Mason, which is on an awesome channel here in L.A. every night, uh, maybe the last black and white show they show on a regular basis, um, he's in three episodes of that. One is an art dealer who hates his wife. Two is an art dealer. One is a diamond thief. Uh, and in the, in the RT, the one where he hates his wife, it's one of those ones where, in the old movies, where they hate their wife so much they never let off on it. You really despise me, don't you, darling? You'd like nothing better than to see me dead, wouldn't you? You know, really, just every minute, you know, like... And that's how George McCready talked. George McCready talked like this. Johnny, how about meeting Gilda? And then, hi, Johnny. Hello, Gilda. Oh, you know each other already. What a surprise. <laughs> They're all sitting around having dinner. So he hires Johnny. Johnny's his right-hand man. Johnny's his main man. Johnny's his boy. That's Glenn Ford. Uh, and he has an awesome name, which I've forgotten. Now I'll get busted for that. It's Hamlin or Hambin or one of those awesome non-existent names from the 40s when people are named like Ribbon and Terse. You know, like what? Is it? Hamblin, come here. No one's named Hamblin on earth. All right, I am. And... Um, then he comes home with a girl, and the girl's Rita Hayworth. And the, the, the opening, this is 20 minutes into the picture, when we meet Rita Hayworth, they come in and he knocks on the door and he says, Gilda, Gilda, are you decent? And she turns, and she, she's clearly naked. You know, like you can't, it's the 40s. She's maybe wearing a thing. And she turns and flips her hair. And I think she says, I am decent or whatever. And, or I haven't been accused of it. And so, of course, George McCready's having an affair with her. But... And if anyone has ever seen a movie, you know Glenn Ford clearly had an affair with her before. So when he introduces them, they're like, and she's all, hi, Johnny. And he's like, hello, Gilda. <laughs> so then they're having dinner one night and they're drunk. And Gilda is a spoiled, tempestuous, strumpet-like, slutty, horrible, self-absorbed, vain, amazingly talented, ridiculously sexy love goddess from the planet Punani. <laughs> she clearly has red hair. And, uh, and she does an insane uh, singing number uh, about three-quarters of the way in the picture called Put the Blame on Mame, where she's wearing a black uh, full-length dress and black gloves that go up to here, right, and pulls one of them off during the whole number, and it's as if she took her all of her clothes off. That's how good the number is. Um, they're, they're drunk and they're having dinner, and, and uh, she's got a really expensive diamond bracelet on, and she goes, I think it's cute. And George McCready goes, 50,000 pesos for a bracelet, and she thinks it's cute. Isn't she fabulous? And Glenn Ford goes, yeah, fabulous. <laughs> and that's why old movies dominate with their enormous black and white cock. 
if Paul Rudd or Jennifer Aniston or what's, who's that fucking guy who was in 300 that's in all these fucking... Jared Butler. Oh, by the flaming balls of Errol Flynn. Jared Butler. If they would ever make a movie where someone would go, 50,000 pesos for a bracelet, and she thinks it's... Now, not that people don't try. There's lots of good movies. I'm not I'm a complete cynic. It's just these rom-coms that drive me up a cocking wall. And then you go to see the thrillers, and they're all CGI stuff. Or people on their computer going, gotcha. You know, like, oh, come on. Stop saying gotcha and pushing a button on your computer. Night vision and cameras didn't make movies better. There, I've said it. Plots make movies better. So do characters. Uh, King Vidor directed Gilda, and I insist that you watch it before we convene again. Laura was directed by Otto Preminger, and Laura is the name of that movie. And the theme song plays through that movie more than any Hollywood movie of today. So, so much for non-commercialism in those days. I swear to fuck, every time they walk into the room, okay, okay, we get it. Her name's Laura, and you're playing the song, Laura. I also brought up uh, the Olympians, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith. We're going to get back to John Carlos because he was at uh, Occupy Wall Street today in New York. But I did mention they were in the 68 Olympics. And, of course, they were barefoot. They wore black socks. It was all about uh, the revolution that was going on in the United States then and black power and getting people to recognize poverty and the unbelievable, insane corporate bullshit that is the fucking Olympics. Let's be honest. What we love about the Olympics is the raw athletic power and the, uh, and the idea that people can persevere, the people that can succeed and do extraordinary things all on their own by training as hard as humanly possible and being dedicated fucking upright individuals. Tommy Smith and John Carlos' professional sporting careers were fucked roundly and soundly by what they did by throwing their fists in the air at the 68 Olympics. John Carlos had a very rough life He's written a book, but he was down at Occupy Wall Street. Anyway, I was saying that there were so many heroes then in sports. And uh, my hero from the 80s was Carl Lewis, who, as you know, took an awful ration of shit on every single kind of innuendo and insinuation uh, that he took drugs, that he was queer, all this nonsensical bullshit that didn't stand in the way of what I'm getting to is I couldn't remember how many gold medals he won when I met him and I asked him nine fucking gold medals and one silver. He has 10 medals. He is third on the list after Michael fucking Phelps and right on and Pavo Nermi, that great runner from the turn of the last century, who I was very excited to see has something in the neighborhood of 12 medals. Uh, Bob Beeman, who I was discussing, the long jumper, jumped 29 feet, two and a half inches, man. Uh, the pit's only 30 feet long. Later, Michael Powell broke his record and jumped 29.4. But when Bob Beeman Dennett, to give you an idea of how far that fucking jump was on the day, and I remember seeing it when I was eight years old, he jumped 21 inches further than the next person. Uh, no one got almost within two feet of him. The judges conferred for maybe 15 minutes. That flag went up. It was a safe jump. They didn't know what to do. Because they were so panicked, he had jumped that far. And so it came out on the board, and they were in Mexico, and they went, 8 meters 90. And Bob Beeman is from America. He went, what's 8 meters 90? <laughs> he had no idea how far he'd fucking jumped until they went, it was 29 feet. And he fell. And there's footage of it. You can go on YouTube. He fell on the ground and almost hyperventilated, just completely passed out, out of sheer fucking exhilaration. 
He didn't take the flag and run around the pitch. He didn't fucking go like this and shit. He didn't throw the number one sign in the air. He didn't pull his shirt off and do the smurf. He didn't do the icky shuffle. He didn't go, I'm going to Disneyland. He fell on the ground in exhilaration at the unbelievable exuberance of the most amazing, fucking astounding Let's just say it. He flew 29 feet in the air. Michael Powell was awesome, too, and I saw him run as well, uh, and he was just tremendous. I was talking about the Ohio players when we were in Ohio. I really have decided that I could spend the next four Proopcasts talking about nothing but the Ohio players. Fortunately for you, we're going to take a left turn, and we're not. But if it gets down to it, and I have to talk about Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Daz, and Lakeside, and Slave, and... Old school funk until the end of fucking time. There may be a few poop casts where we just play records. That's all I'm saying. You're just going to, instead of the vodcast, that'll be a podcast. And I will just sit here and smoke pot while you go. Are, are you going to say anything at any point? And when I do, it'll be, yow. Or, of course, say what? My favorite noise that Sugarfoot and Ohio players ever made is, and the song Love Roller Coaster, about three quarters of the way through, he goes, Hi! <laughs> I don't know how much funkier it can get. <laughs> also, getting back to James Brown, as we so often will try to do, uh, there's a video of him doing um, uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag from Shindig. Uh, and never mind, I mean, I love I Feel Good. I think everybody loves I Feel Good. I think we've all heard I Feel Good so many times that we don't feel as good as we might when we hear it. <laughs> Uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag is the funky, funky, funky. Of course, the baritone sax one. Everything's on, as Bootsy said. What it, uh, Terry Gross asked him, what did, what did James Brown teach you about funk, Bootsy? And he went, it's on the one, baby. Um, <laughs> because it goes, dun, 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 bah, dun, 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 right? So in this video, it's on Shindig, and they go, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Excitement, dun, 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 James Brown. And he comes up a runway. It's super arty. It's in black and white. And he just comes out and just starts dancing. And, and it's that awesome dance that's not, not a lot of herky-jerk. It's all fucking feet, right? And then the greatest move ever, I have to get up to do it. You won't see it on the podcast. That. He measures his inseam. And it is fucking... Wow. Wow. He's got like beetle boots on and shit. Uh, the pre-Beetle Beetle Boots. Then, it, 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 you know, because it's beautifully shot, then the band is revealed in light. Then the background singers are revealed in light. Then a bunch of dancing girls come on. Then a bunch of dancing guys come on. Then the dancing girls, then it's revealed he's on a big round platform with this fucking outfit and the patent leather boots. The, then a bunch of the girls just start dancing around him, going like this, like worshiping him. And I thought, this is exactly what was going on inside his brain. You're actually getting an insight into what James Brown was thinking in 1965. Just girls in miniskirts going like this in a circle all the time while he just goes, ain't no drag. Bop, 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 right? Just amazing. My friend Jack Fletcher gave me a Judy Garland uh, Christmas DVD. She did a Christmas special late 60s. I was going to say late 60s, but she didn't make it to the late 60s. It's about 65, 66 to give you an idea, Jack Jones is on it and, uh, in a sweater, and, and, and uh, Liza is on it as a teen, uh, uh, Lorna is on it, and Joey, the, the forgotten uh, Garland, the forgotten Minnelli, uh, Joey, he's not a Minnelli, he's a, um, a loft, is he? Joey's on it too, and they're at home, and it's Judy at home, and you know, Judy at home, wow, right? Because, like, you at home, you're like, oh, it's Christmas. Judy at home, it's like, 
Oh, it's Christmas. Mom, get out of the bathroom. No, there's a Perkadan left on Earth. You know what I mean? Like, her Christmas is different than your Christmas. So they tried to make this heartfelt family Judy Christmas. And I, by the way, I worship Judy Garland. And again, I make no, I'm straight as fuck. I am not gay. I worship Judy Garland. There, I've said it. Again, I make no case for my non-homosexuality, but I do worship Judy Garland. Because I think she's so vulnerable. I mean, what we love about her is what we love about what everybody loves about her. She's the American Piaf, right? There couldn't be enough more fucking tragedy. She makes this beautiful picture when she's a teenage girl and she's so glowing in it and everybody loves it and it's such a funny picture and it's in Technicolor. Then a million big musicals. By the time she was thrown out of MGM, she was 28. I mean, honestly, she's not old in the movies ever because she's not old ever in life. She didn't, 47, I think she made it to. So when you see her in the picture, she's eternally young. Uh, and in this Christmas special, they're at the crib and they sing all the regular songs and shit. Then she comes out to sing a song. And at one point, a thousand gay guys in reindeer outfits <laughs> come running on the Z axis. Norman Jewison directed this. He made Fiddler on the Roof and Heat of the Night and all those great pictures, right? The Anderson tapes. All these gay guys come running on the Z axis and cross in front of her, leaping in reindeer outfits. And my friend Jack Fletcher said, when you get to this scene, you're going to get an idea of what was going on inside Judy's mind during the taping of the special. <laughs> and for me, the, ja the James Brown shindig one, just girls in miniskirts. So I'm like, whoa, I love you, I love you. Uh, and I did too, I loved him too. My point about the Ohio players was exactly this. I said it was Satch was the one who wore the, the jean hat with the, um, uh, the applique little you know, buttons on it, whatever. I erred slightly, and to err is human, and to forgive, fucking, uh, uh, divine. And it's Billy Beck on keyboards is the one I'm thinking of, because Billy Beck looks like a Muppet. He has the tinted glasses and sometimes the long, straight, processed hair. And, and Billy's the one who goes, um, uh, uh, he's the one who does the screams in Roller Coaster. No, a girl didn't get stabbed in the studio, sadly. And in Agata Davida, a person wasn't trapped in a coffin for half an hour during the drum solo. I hate to. Br and Paul McCartney lived because he just got married. All these things I'm blowing open here. Uh, Billy Beck was that one, and he does the. Because he's saying in a mad falsetto. Satch was the first saxophone player when you watch, when you go home tonight and watch an Ohio Players video. And the reason why you'll like them better than anything is. Uh, the show Midnight Special, I think, next to Old Grey Whistle Test, might be the greatest archive show of all time because somehow every goddamn band from the 70s ended up on Midnight Special. And I mean every band, from the Starland Vocal Band, from the most nauseating, from Debbie Boone, from the most nauseating, anodyne, white people, yogurt-laced, Ann Murray, fucking snowbird shit, middle-of-the-road, AOR, fucking intolerable rock, to... Thin Lizzy and Kiss and Blondie and the New York Dolls. There's a New York Dolls Midnight Special episode where they sing Personality Crisis in front of the most confused group of Hollywood teenagers that have ever watched a fucking... They're all in drag. They all have fucking platform shoes on. They're fucking high. And they go, the New York Dolls! And they come on. They, and David Johansson looks like Mick Jagger had sex with a portion of Carly Simon. And... <laughs> They sing it and it's fucking rocking good news. Johnny Thunders has the best hair ever in the world. Like a magpie did his hair. You know, just this insane sort of equatorial Guinea Bowerbird hair. And the L.A. crowd, right? Then. Bored and slightly scared, except for one freaky chick up front who knows every fucking word of the song. 
Right, she's a personality crisis. You got it while it was hot. Right, like, and everyone else is like, we like the eagles. Uh, but Midnight Special has all these fucking acts. But the, it's the hosts. Because you never fucking know. There's one Ohio Players one. It's Helen Reddy. Because she was host of the bloody show for a while. Now, no one remembers Helen Reddy. But there was a time when she strode the earth like a mighty koala bear. She was from Australia. She had no personality whatsoever. She was mildly pleasant and mildly attractive. And she sang every Paul Williams song ever, right? I'd, we've talked about Paul Williams before in the show. He was the one in Phantom of the Paradise who played Swan, the bad guy. He also wrote uh, No Getting Over That Rainbow. He wrote We've Only Just Begun. He wrote an old-fashioned love song. He wrote a thousand songs. Paul Williams sang like this. Just an old-fashioned song. Playing on the radio. And wrapped around me. Because the sun is so and there go this way like why, why can't you open your mouth why is every letter a syllabin s shouldn't just syllabin s's be syllabin s's because <laughs> that's how he's saying we've only just begun to live really so Helen Reddy sang all of his songs uh, what was hers uh, <coughs> day after day I must face a world of strangers where I don't belong. I'm not that strong. Interior rhyme. Uh, Paul sang it like this. Day after day. <laughs> Helen Reddy did a song uh, that was amazingly popular called Delta Dawn, right? And that was her biggie. Who the fuck wrote Delta Dawn? Maybe someone can Google it before we end the show. Who was it? And they wrote Delta Dawn? The, the, boy and kids. the boy and Collins kids wrote Delta Dawn. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. I'm giving you a koozie. That's an assist. If, if you're from the 80s, I'd give you a Magic Johnson. A bounce pass. Thank you. Um, it was Colin. Uh, uh, Matt, cut out that part with the lady talking. It was Colin from Collins Kids who wrote Delta Dawn. You all remember Collins Kids. I know I do. Male ego. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, and Delta Dawn was an amazingly huge hit. Then, of course, Tanya Tucker, when she first came out, uh, before all the good times, uh, was, uh, I think she was, what, 13 or 14? Hey, fuck Leanne Rimes. Tanya Tucker was sluttier and harder and rockiner than Leanne Rimes. Leanne Rimes can lose as much weight as she wants. Tanya Tucker's freak pageant still fucking dominates hers. <laughs> I mean, Tanya Tucker was sold as underage country toddy in little fucking cutoff shorts and, a, and one of those, you know, uh, tablecloth colored tops, you know, with the little red and white checks and just slutty. It was awesome. Really awesome. This was the 70s. They were very good. Uh, and she did Delta Dawn. But Delta Dawn has, I think, the scariest, most awful plot of any song ever, aside from The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by Vicki Lawrence, where they hung an innocent man. Uh, in Delta Dawn, she says uh, she's 41 and her daddy still calls her baby. All the folks around Brownsville say she's crazy because she walks downtown with a suitcase in her hand like, oh, fuck. This is about a crazy person. So the whole fucking song. So Helen Reddy was so huge from that. And she married some big producer, Jeff Wald or somebody. Um, I remember she stumped for Jerry Brown in the 70s. In any case, she's hosting and she goes, the, cut to her on the YouTube. The Ohio Players. <laughs> and then... They play the theme to the Munsters. 
bum, 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 and then fire, and then Sugarfoot. Wow. Unbelievably good. Satch is the leader. Satch did all the arrangements. Satch made all the clothes. So if you're wondering why you're watching it, why they are wearing midi tops with bell-bottom jeans that have moons up the side, that would be Satch. Uh, And that was his contribution. Uh, And Billy Beck is on keyboards, who's the one who looks a little bit, dare I say it, like Drooper from the Banana Splits. And I am almost sure one preceded the other. You know, the little shades, the hat. And the long straight hair and whatnot. If only Drooper could have sang in that kind of um, falsetto. Although I was watching a banana splits the other night. And um, really, Greg, were you? I'm the smartest man in the world. I can do whatever I like after hours. I go home after the gig and I watch videos and I happen to flip on a banana splits one. And it was fucking rocking good news. Um, Aside from their theme song, which I think a lot of us remember. And I'll explain the banana splits because I know there's kids out there. There was uh, was a live action animation show from the late 60s, early 70s, before everything was CGI'd and before everything was um, uh, uh, a group of people that fought crime, this was, a t- uh, fantastically, there was the Beatles, and then the monkeys were like a TV imitation of the Beatles, and then the banana splits were a child's TV imitation of the monkeys. So rather than just being four guys who lived in a crib, they were four men in animal costumes who lived in a crib. There was Flegel, Bingo, Drooper, and of course everyone's favorite, Snorky, who was an elephant who did not speak but simply went At the beginning of the show they had a theme song which later became Buffalo Soldier by Bob Marley. That's how the theme song went. But there's another one if you go online. It's called Doing the Banana Splits and it's just one of their numbers and it is the most rock and soul number. I don't know who their fucking songwriters were. Lady? No. No. Wow, I thought I could handle one more for you. Then I think I'd funnel you one more pass over there and see if you'd come flying back with who wrote the Banana Split song. I know I should look these things up before I talk about them, but I can't. I'm busy, I'm high. Um, And it goes, doing it, doing it, doing it, doing the Banana Split, y'all. Like, it's just insane. So in the middle of the song, and it's just men in costumes playing, pretending to play guitars, out comes five little girls in hot pants, a black girl and all these other girls, and it is the most namblatastic pederastic. It's, it's not supposed to be. I watched it as a child, and I thought they were cute, but I was seven years old or whatever. But when you watch it now, you're like, how did that fucking get on TV? There is a gigantic orangutan who's clearly high wearing giant shades and a vest singing the Banana Split song while a girl in hot pants gyrates massively in front of him. Not till Star Search, when they used to let little five-year-olds go on, like in the beauty pageants, and do the, what did I used to say? Do the, do the coochie dance to Funky Cold Medina. Yeah. yeah. Star Search had some of the most egregious fucking children's acts that ever, ever fucking strode the face of the earth. Um, so that was your banana splits. It was the Ohio players. Billy Beck was the keyboard player. God bless Satch's past now. Uh, I was down at, uh, speaking of John Carlos, and this is why we go with the Olympic thing, First of all, let me say this. We have an, a, a, a Proopcast app. I know there's a lot of hipsters out there who are listening on their phone uh, and a lot of other people who simply have their phone with them at all times, almost as if it's your only friend. And uh, there's a Proopcast app for iPhone and Android, and you can go to Proopcast.com. And I'm going to spell that because I realize that it can be a difficult word. And the reason I realized that is people tweet me and go, do you know if you didn't have an R in your name, your name would be poop? 
I swear to God, at this late date, this has happened in the last week. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about when I was four. I'm talking about now. Not during the Duna Banana Splits Y'all era of my life, but during this era of my life, people really do tweet me and go, your name would be Poops. <laughs> and you're like, did you forget your milk money on the way to this tweet? Because someone missed nap time. P-R-O-O-P-C-A-S-T dot com. And you can uh, click there. Uh, you can find a plethora of things on the Proopcast site. Um, first of all, you can download the show for free anytime you likes. Secondly, uh, you can now get uh, our droid and also um, our app now. And there'll be special material on the app that later we'll be getting to um, uh, that only you will get. You will get only. Wow, it's a grammatical rodeo. Only will you get only getting only you will get if only you get this only you will get this because that you can only get it if you uh download the app then only you will get this as what you get only and someone just said i get it you don't fucking get it you have to subscribe to fucking get it i know you get the concept is what you're saying but what you don't get is that you will only get that i was down at john carlos was at don't no shh John John Carlos was uh, in New York at uh, Occupy Wall Street today. And we've been talking about uh, Occupy Wall Street on the Proopcast for the last, oh, I don't know, two or three Proopcasts. And you've seen that it's uh, swept the nation uh, because finally the mainstream, or as Sarah Palin will call it, the lamestream media, uh, has taken it up uh, and had to acknowledge that it's going on one. If I have to, I still keep hearing every day from different people, well, what's their agenda and what do they want? Um, I've got an idea. Why don't you take a walk down the fucking street and you'll see what people want. Um, maybe it's come to your attention that things aren't that great right now and that um, unlike the, uh, uh, the 30s when the Depression had a cultural renaissance, um, we've had a, a nuclear uh, fallout tidal wave hit Japan. So not only on top of the imminent collapse of the financial system of the entire fucking world with the bank snatching and grabbing and everyone fucking us roundly, we faced the very very, very real possibility of having to fight Godzilla in our lifetime. So it's a little bit different than it was in the old times. Uh, what people want is to not be excluded from the pie uh, to have all the corporations take all the money. I'm putting it as simply as I can so that you might understand. Um, because I've had people uh, the last week, why don't they get a job? They're just scruffy hippies. If you want to be taken seriously, don't bring a bongo with you. That was my favorite one. If you want to be seri taken seriously, don't bring a bongo with you to a protest. So let me get this straight. When the Tea Partiers wore Revolutionary War outfits with T-shirts on them and had hats that had tea bags hanging off them, you took that seriously. When they dressed like a bad episode of Where the Action Is with Paul Revere and the Raiders... <laughs> Somehow to you, that was the very height of political discourse. But when a scruffy hippie dude showed up with a Rage Against the Machine t-shirt and played a bongo, you checked out. All right. Just so I'm clear on that, and I get it. So did you hear that, kids? Don't bring bongos because you don't want to upset anyone who has lots of money. And the other thing I heard was, um, why don't they get a job? Boy, does that miss the point of everything entirely. I think the point is you'll find no one has a fucking job. Ergo, that's why they're out in a tent protesting. But why don't they get one? Because um, it's not that simple. 
So uh, I went down to Occupy LA. I was in Occupy Cleveland last week. We went down to Occupy LA yesterday. By this point, by the time you're listening uh, in your earbuds or at the gym or in your automobile or at work, and I hope you're at work again, as I've said so many times, please waste all your boss's time by listening to my Proopcasts one after the next while you're at work. We will subvert the dominant paradigm, you and I, one Proopcast at a time. Uh, it was lovely. I mean, not lovely in the sense of like, it wasn't like going to the Four Seasons or whatever and, you know, ordering room service. But it was like, thank you for not laughing. Gee whiz, what a serious fucking crowd this is. Maybe I should get Ryan Gosling in and we can really talk about some eclectic issues. Oh, I'm being catty, am I? I have not yet begun to fucking bitch you fuckers out. You thought I bitched Cleveland out. I'll take fucking Hollywood on eight ways from fucking Wednesday. Well, you know, here in the apathy dome, where everyone is more interested in honking at the old Jewish lady in front of me who was trying to make a fucking right turn onto Wilshire today without noticing that it took her a year to come out of the fucking driveway because she was scared out of her fucking wits because she's blind and a hundred. And yet the woman behind her had to lay on the fucking horn. And this is what L.A. is. It's the most selfish people in the world acting like the biggest cunts that ever strode the face of the earth because of some fucking self-empowering. I think because the sun shines a lot here and everyone thinks that God is favoring you meteorologically every cocking minute of your life and you've got a phone in your car and you can go wherever you want that, that people want me to run down pedestrians that people are honking at old hundred year old blind people who can't drive anymore um, someone cut me off at the post office today because I was trying to back into a parking space are you not allowed in this country did not Thomas Jefferson in the third article of the Bill of Rights state the government shall not abridge the right of the people to back into a cocking parking place on Fairfax. A person in a burgundy fucking car, I don't remember what kind it was. I want to say it was the uh, Plymouth douche. They got right up behind me to make sure they were going to let me know that they weren't going to let me back into that fucking space. And as soon as I pulled away, they pulled into it frontwards. And that is what's fucking going on in this town. Why is there no football team in this town? You don't fucking deserve it. That's why. You don't fucking deserve one. That's why. Although I won't hear the other side because I have to go to San Francisco because I'm from there and hear all the bloody time. There's no country in LA or people from New York. People from New York give me such a fucking machine of pain. They always... Uh, well, LA doesn't have any culture. Bullshit. I went to the opening of the West Hollywood Library a week before last, and as I was talking about Joan uh, Collins, Joan Collins, wouldn't it have been great if it was Joan Collins? <laughs> if Joan Collins had been at the opening of that library, that would have been the best opening ever, wouldn't it? In a giant hat and shit, right? Oh, I see you've come. You know, just fantastically. <laughs> really bitchy, you know, and then a cat fight with Linda Evans. I would have paid to see that, frankly, I would. Uh, no, it was Jackie Collins. She, she read at the opening. But there was a zillion fucking people there and food trucks everywhere and all these used book stands. That's right. You heard me. Book stands. L.A., by the goddamn way, is full of fucking great writers, great authors, great artists, amazing filmmakers, tremendous performers, superb musicians. And, okay, there's a commercial end of it. Yeah, Glee in 3D came from here. Okay, I'm sorry. There's a lot of shit that comes out of here that you're not going to fucking like. This is, the, this is the town where someone took a meeting and went, burlesque, the movie. <laughs> okay? And someone green-lighted it. This is the town where all those things happen. Someone went, I got it. The husband's fat. The wife's hot. Stop me! 
I grant you, all these things happen here. We are the shallowest town in the world, and we give us a fuck about not nothing ever, 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 ever. Otherwise, there would be a giant statue of D.W. Griffith in the middle of the town. That racist cocksucker? Yeah, he also invented film and shit. Um, the, the, uh, yes, he was a racist cocksucker, and he invented film. Sometimes you must separate the artist from the racist cocksucker. Otherwise, you will never enjoy anything the rest of your life. Um, um, some of you probably like Sammy Hagar. It may not surprise you to know that he simply cannot drive 55. <laughs> There's a dichotomy in all of us. As Michael Jackson once said, there is good and bad in everyone. And in Michael Jackson, there was a lot of good and bad. Um, and a lot of fucking anesthesia. He took anesthesia like I eat fucking chewing gum. Like with, uh, frequently and heedlessly. Uh, in any case, uh, this town has loads of culture, but we are selfish cocksuckers, uh, and, and it just drives me up a goddamn wall. But not at the Occupy LA uh, site. It was a tent city, uh, so of course, it was very intense. <laughs> I'm getting my phone now. I'm not even talking to you people for a while. Oh, my publicist emailed me. Let me read this to you. Oh, I have, a, I have a call confirmed for Friday. <laughs> Smell me all over the yard. Oh, Texas must have lost tonight. My cousin just texted me. <laughs> Fucking hate the Rangers. I love my cousin Donnie, but I hate the Rangers. Sorry, Donnie. He called me a Ranger hater last night. And he also said, uh, oh, really? Did you suck dick like, what was it, Chaz Bono's boner or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, oh, no, that's the kind of dialogue I have with my relatives. <laughs> Um, they were living in tents. To give you an idea, it was so peaceable. In Boston last night, and by the time you listen to this, it will have been several nights before, the cops went wild in the night, like Alexander the Great didn't like to fight in, and uh, ran over the fucking place, rousted and beat up some Vietnam vets, which was a very tasteful moment in police history in Boston, uh, and really shook the whole fucking place down. In San Francisco last week, they drove garbage trucks to the tent city. The mayor of San Francisco, who, by the way, wasn't elected, appointed Mayor Lee, he was not elected, like... Gordon Brown, the former prime minister of England, was not elected. He was appointed. That's not democracy in any fucking way whatsoever. Um, is kind of a dick. And you know, I always talk about San Francisco and rave about it and how great it is and how it's better than L.A. and shit. Well, not in this fucking case. Uh, the cops are way heavy-handed up there. They're not letting the protesters do anything. Uh, although I hilariously read the Atlanta mayor yesterday said, there's got to be an end to this. Again, missing the point entirely of a protest about poverty and taking power back from the corporations and having a voice in society. There is no end to that. The tents will be there as long, in any case. Uh, there's a tent city there. Media tent, welcome tent. This is Los Angeles. Uh, a commissary. There was a laundry area. The cops never come by, by the way, and when they do, they're cool. And they're next to the police station. They're across the street from the police station. The city councils come by. The mayors come by. Mayor Villaragosa, who is not famous in Los Angeles for his social activism. He's more famous for chasing hot Latina hooch with something close to a fervency and going to every event out of the state. I think he spends, what, 15% of his time in Los Angeles, according to the uh, LA Weekly. Uh, not known as the most civically, uh, you know, proud of all of our mayors. And yet, God damn it, I'm proud of him. He went down to fucking Occupy LA and shook hands. And they're not wiping anyone out. And they're not running garbage trucks through. And they're not having police come in the middle of the night. And I mean, 
they are surrounding City Hall. Here's City Hall. This is the tent city. There's the police department. And there was not one act of violence. Um, they're, they're not letting people drink or smoke weed or even smoke, really. I mean, you can see why. Once you have everybody drinking and smoking weed, it becomes like an encampment. And we can't have the poor doing that. If the poor are politically motivated, then it's okay. Um, so uh, the cops are being cool. There's a welcome tent with a suggestion box. And yes, they are doing a general assembly every night. And they entertain the suggestions from the box. And I was listening to the radio today, and one of the guys said, um, uh, they asked him, well, what, what's going on with people down there? And he went, I, I would appreciate it if people went to the pre-meeting meeting so we don't have to go through the rules of order every goddamn time with every person that shows up here. And then went, but we welcome everyone. Because, you know, the one in Cleveland, they spelled it out. You're not allowed to be racist. You're not allowed to be sexist. If you like the idea, you're to put your thumbs up. If you don't like the idea, you put your thumbs down. There's a very organized, reasonable, logical discourse. Not that people with crocheted hats with tea bags hanging off them, screaming, the president is a Nazi, isn't logical, reasonable discourse. They have every right to do that. Therefore, poor people have every right and working class people, and unionists, and women, and students, and all of us have every right to go to these general assembly things. Here's the groovy part. Uh, some of the, there was, of course, hilarious signs, um, one of which was a tent that said, kitten committee. And uh, thank you. I thought it was cute, too, because I say kitten so often. Someone actually wrote me and said, is that your headquarters? And I was like, I would, but I couldn't live in a tent. It's too much like being outside for me. I'll go outside for a protest, but sleeping all night in a tent in front of City Hall? Sorry, you guys. I love you. I'll give you money. I'll help you. And I'll promote this cause until the day I fucking can't breathe anymore. But I don't think I can spend all night in a tent. I have a lot of things I have to do. I have to anoint my body with precious oils. Um, I have a lot of maladies. I've got dengue fever in the yaws. I've got rickets. Um... I have to take uh, unguents and lotions. I have to mix a, a giant elixir of drops when I get home. There's a lot of... I'm just making excuses now, but this is why I'm not going to... I would like to join the kitten committee, and I, I don't even want to chair it. Uh, I just want to be there with a the ball of yarn. The uh, Occupy LA resolution was introduced by council members Richard Alicarn and Bill Rosendahl. Excuse me. On Wednesday, October 5th, this is the difference between Los Angeles, that uncool place where there's no culture and nobody ever comes together and does anything, except we are, will be voted on this Wednesday, um, which will be passed, I think, by the time this drops, but we'll see. I'm not going to read you the whole bloody thing because it's in, um, uh, you know, resolution ease, but this is the best part, addressing concerns regarding the responsible banking measure, a recommendation for council action. Uh, subject to the concurrence of the mayor, adopt the accompanying resolution to support the continuation of the peaceful and vibrant exercise in First Amendment rights carried out by Occupy Los Angeles. A little bit different than Boston and New York, isn't it? Where Moo Blamberg of New York, who's also male of New York, he's the male and he's the mool of New York, as well as being the shul and the shmool. Moo Blamberg said that um, the protesters were taking jobs away from people which is an unbelievable logical gyration that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, 
they would address some of the concerns by, occupy, by demanding accountability and results from the banks. We invest taxpayer dollars in to bring the responsible banking measure to a final vote. So they actually introduced a measure about that. Um, oh, kittens, this show's gotten completely away from me. And yet, I have so much more to get through. Uh, we do take questions on the show, but we're going to do that a little bit later. Uh, the good news this week, of course, was that um, the Nobel Peace Prize were handed out, and it was to three women. Um, you may remember the Nobel Peace Prize was handed out, was it just last year, when Barack Obama, our president, won one, and then started a war against Libya? <laughs> Hardly the act of a Peace Prize winner. Uh, or clearly the act of a Peace Prize winner in this day and age. As I think I've said before on the show, do you think when he walks into his Oval Office, the Peace Prize goes, I don't feel that good. <laughs> I know what they were trying to do by giving him one. They were being preemptive and kind of like pushing him toward peace, and that didn't work. Uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, uh, Lemia Gobowie, and Tebukol Karman share the Peace Prize. Ellen Johnson Sirleaf... Um, is Africa's first democratically elected female head of state. Try that fucking on. What year is this? Uh, her countrywoman, Lemia Gaboe, a peace activist who challenged warlords, and Tabakal Karman, a Yemeni human rights leader. You know that hotbed of democracy, the Yemen? Uh, and it, I couldn't be more excited by it. Uh, you know why they did it this year, because of what they did last year. And they thought they really have to... Uh, knuckle down and find people who won or worthy of the Peace Prize. And wasn't it about time that some women won it? I think the numbers in here, I don't want to get hung up on numbers, but I think it's something like 12 women have ever won a fuck. <clears throat> the trio joined an exclusive group of about a dozen female Nobel Peace laureates. A dozen. Because, you know, women are hardly ever nurturing or caring or take care of communities or do anything, really, except fix their fucking hair. Um, the, the guy Shia <laughs> Johnson Sirleaf won international plaudits for her governance the economist said she was arguably the best president Liberia has ever had the economist is not a left wing commie rag the economist is the, the voice of all money uh, so you know she's groovy Gabawi was close to tears Gubawi, who works for Accra, the Ghana-based Women, Peace, and Security Network Africa, played a key role in ending the Liberian War. Blah, 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 blah. And then this one is one of my favorite ones. Um, Carmen, a journalist and longtime human rights activist, is a nod to the democratic revolutions that have swept North Africa because she's from the Yemen. Uh, Gubawi um, went on a sex strike because at one point women organized a sex strike to underscore their anger about continuing violence. We didn't have the power to go to peace talks, so we thought, what else do we have to lose? Um, it puts Occupy LA in perspective. It puts all of us in perspective. Uh, these women literally put their lives on the line. And I couldn't be happier that the Nobel Prize gave them a bunch of money, the Nobel Committee gave them a bunch of money, uh, and actually acknowledged them. Now back to our Peace Prize winner, President Hope. This is what he said last week in the face of uh, all that's going on, this heinous jobs bill. And may I remind you again that the head of the jobs committee is Jeffrey Immelt, the head of General Electric, who has outsourced more jobs than any fucking corporate head, and that General Electric pays no taxes whatsoever because they have 2,000-something, 2,500 lawyers to make sure they don't pay taxes. This is what Obama said, because they were asking about layman's and the whole financial collapse. One of the biggest problems about the collapse of layman's and the whole subprime lending fiasco is that a lot of stuff wasn't necessarily illegal. It was just immoral or inappropriate or reckless. 
The financial sector is very creative. I'm having to hang on. My gorge has risen and I'm choking it back down with cooling thoughts as Satchel Paige would have once suggested. The financial sector is very creative. Let's just change the word creative here. Let's see. Craven, greedy, acquisitive, heedless cocksuckers. Now, now let's try the sentence again. The financial sector is very craven, greedy, heedless uh, cocksuckers. And they're always looking for ways to make money. That's their job. Oh, I see. So if your job is to make money, then you are to do anything in order to make money. And that the sum prime lending fiasco was our fault, again, because we dared to get a mortgage. It was, not, it was immoral, inappropriate, or reckless. It wasn't illegal. President Hope was a Harvard Law student. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a comedian who gets drunk a lot. I don't know axonometer. I don't know blacksmith's fundamentals. I don't know the code of Hammurabi. (laughs) I know that when banks juke people, that's illegal. What's illegal is not prosecuting them in any way. And then when tent cities spring up like Hoovervilles in 1931 and the government goes, <laughs> those smelly hippies should stop playing hacky sack. I know that something's fucked up and I don't want anyone to ask me ever again why these people are forming cities and what the Occupy movement is about. Just think of that paragraph. That was our president who attended Harvard Law School telling you that what the banks did was immoral or inappropriate or reckless because they're very creative. You know what's very creative? Your kid, when they make a painting and you put it on the refrigerator, that's very creative. Your kid didn't fuck you over, lower the subprime rate, juke fucking loans, take all the fucking money, take loan handouts from the government, steal it, give themselves bonuses, and sit on the rest and never give out loans again. That's what your five-year-old didn't do. But Lehman fucking did it. Thank you. Uh, Bank profits are highest since before the recession. Uh huh. And while that, banks make nearly one-third of the corporate profits. The biggest banks have gotten bigger. The nation's biggest banks, Bank of America, Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo, are bigger than they were. The four biggest banks issue 50% of the mortgages. The ten biggest banks hold 60% of the assets. The six biggest banks, blah, 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 blah. God, they're creative. When I think of Picasso or Joni Mitchell... Or Carlos Castaneda. Or the Rockettes. Or even Britney Spears. I think, I wish they were as creative as Sherson Lehman and Citigroup. <laughs> uh, this one I thought you had to hear because it is a, a bloody cracker. You know who Marie Sendak is, right? He wrote In the Night Kitchen and he wrote, um, Oh, Kittens, I've forgotten that. Well, well the wild things are. Uh, but what's the other one? Uh, Giving Tree? Oh, no, it's Shel Silverstein. Which one was it? The Rosie. Something about Rosie. Thank you. I like when you went, the Rosie thing, what is it called? <laughs> That's, that was what my question was. What is it called? Yeah, no, you did get me there. Um, 
Maurice Sendak got interviewed by The Guardian, and um, he's in his 80s, and he's gay as a flight of doves, and his partner sadly passed away several years ago. His dog is named Herman, Herman Melville, uh, and he wrote Wild, Wild Things Are. 83, still enraged by everything that crosses his landscape. And this is what I, this interview was the best fucking interview with a children's author, illustrator I have ever read. You'd think at 83 he'd be like, you know, you have a drink, you have a little knish, maybe you do some drawings, whatnot. Ebooks. I hate them. It's like making believe there's another kind of sex. There isn't another kind of sex. There isn't another kind of book! Exclamation point. A book is a book is a book! Awesome. This is Maurice Sendak who wrote Where the Wild Things Are. New York. You get pushed and harassed and people grope you. It's too tumultuous. It's too crazy. The American right. These Republican schnooks. Thank you, Maurice. It's been a long time since I've schnooked. You don't hear Schlemal that much anymore. You don't hear Schmendrick. And you definitely don't hear schnook. In the 60s, always you heard schnook. These Republican schnooks would be comical if they weren't not funny. Rupert Murdoch. His name should be what everything is called now, but he publishes you. Yes, Harper's. He owns Harper's. And I guess the rest of the world, too. He represents bad things, how bad things have become. But I don't know about our house. They're all in trouble. They're all terrible. This is like going to see your booby. It is just fucking the best interview I've ever read in my life. He's bitter and he's 83. He's rich, you know. Uh, I can't believe it. I was young months ago. And this is my favorite part. This is my favorite, favorite part. First of all, Where the Wild Things Are, not his favorite. I love that. Of course, couldn't be. It's contrary. Uh, Sendak's picture books acknowledge the terrors of childhood, how vicious and lonely it can be. And this is the best quote ever next to the next one I'm going to read you, which is this. I refuse to lie to children. I refuse to cater to the bullshit of innocence. God damn it, that's funny. That is really funny. The bullshit of innocence. How many children's authors would even have the fucking strength of character to say that? What, is it, what does Marlon Brando say? The, the, the courage. Yes, the courage to say that. The bullshit of innocence. Children are innocent up to a certain point. Then they're not fucking innocent. Then they're little demons who would choke you to death and shit. And if there's one thing children want to know about, it's the dark side of the soul. That's what fairy tales are all about. Ask the brothers fucking grim. Uh, and I think Marie Sendak plays to that. This is the other part that made me love him beyond all measure. And you're going to know why in a moment. He's reading all the classics now that he's 83, which I love. Because I'm always trying to get the classics down and I can't. Uh, Proust and George Eliot, right? Never cracked Proust, and I, I need to. Because as Auntie Mame said, I want my biography to be like Proust in a box set. Uh, and with off that, he's off again. Salmon Rushdie, Salmon Rushdie, who once gave him a terrible review in the New York Times. That flaccid fuckhead. <laughs> he was detestable. I called up the Ayatollah. Nobody knows that. called Salman Rushdie a flaccid fuckhead. He does children's illustrations. He has a new book out, a new children's book. 
And this is where you know where I'm going to like, where you're going to like me. Roald Dahl, the cruelty in his books is off-putting. Scary guy, I know he's popular, but what's nice about this guy? He's dead, that's what's nice about him. And Stephen King, bullshit! Gwyneth Paltrow, I can't stand her. I didn't write it, you guys. I didn't write it. I didn't write it. I've stayed off Gwyneth for weeks now. It's been the sheer force of will on my part. That and an edict laid down by the General Assembly in my home. <laughs> that I mustn't never mention Gwyneth Paltrow, not never, not no more. Uh, because I was getting a little too into the Gwyneth Paltrow train. Uh, but I just know that Maurice Sendak hates her. And I also said that Sam and Rushdie wasn't a very good writer a couple of weeks ago. And now I've got my backup. Not only is he not a very good writer, he's a flaccid fuckhead. <laughs> I've never even thought of that phrase. That's genius. How can you be a fuckhead by its very nature if you're flaccid? Shouldn't you be a turgid fuckhead, a tumescent fuckhead? No, he's a flaccid fuckhead. He can't even be a fuckhead. He's, that's how flaccid he is. Uh, we'll take one question. If you want to question me here, it's uh, smartestofthespecialthing.com. I'm going to go to a question that I didn't get to in a previous proofcast, and I thank you for your patience. Here it is. Um... Dear Supreme Chancellor of the Known Universe. Wow. I thought I was only co-ruler of the 14th Quadrant. But apparently the Horsehead Nebula is in my purview. That's very exciting to me because I had no idea uh, my realm extended that far into the universe. I had really kept it down to this galaxy, but evidently I am Supreme Chancellor of the, of the Known Universe. Well, then that means there's points unknown. Let me put it this way. There's a blue giant with my name on it out there. Yolanda. Yolanda? When are you writing from? The 40s? Yolanda. <laughs> Sylvia and Yolanda want to know, when's Bert getting home? Yolanda, wa Yolanda wants to know, uh, what is the best way to conceal weed when discreetly passing it on as a gift? Yolanda, that's a very pertinent question. Sincerely yours, Yolanda. Well, sincerely to you, Yolanda. Uh, best seems to be an overused adverb, uh, modivar, adverb. Uh, the best way to conceal wean when directly passing it on as a gift. I'm going to give you my method, and I shouldn't be giving away my, 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 my um, tricks like this because I'm Jedi, and uh, I carry weed with me a lot in a lot of different circumstances where perhaps it might be inappropriate not to. In any case, let's move on to the answer to this question. The best way, I think, is to roll a joint. Why? Because it's an easier delivery system, as we say in this day and age. When you just get people loose buds in the back of a, you know, the, of a, the plastic of a cigarette pack, it can be smelled forever and ever, everywhere. Amen. You walk into a bar and people go, hey, when did the skunk get run over? This is my, roll it in a very tightly written joint with a um, European filter at the end, and then put it in a matchbox that you get from a restaurant or any old place. Uh, that, I think, is the most discreet way. That way you go, Broham, and just hand it to your friend, and then everybody doesn't know. No one's hipper, and none's the wiser. Having said this, we were recently in San Francisco at a very uh, a festive art gallery opening by a very good friend of uh, ours, my wife's and mine, named uh, Rex Ray, uh, who's a fabulous artist. Yes, you may Google him if you wish. And uh, we went to his opening, and we wanted to give him some weed, and I had those little... Um, uh, what are they? They're like Lister Mint strips, but they come from the weed store. 
You know what they are? They're like, you know, like Listerman strips that you pull out and you just put on your tongue and they make your breath fresh. Well, these you pull out and put on your tongue and they make you hot as fuck. Uh, <laughs> and you go, let's go to Golden State and get curry fries. I want the ice cream that's an inference of a caterpillar. So my wife hands him, the, and I go, put it in this envelope so it'll be discreet, because discretion is my middle name after Everett. Gregory Everett, discretion proofs. Um, she hands him the thing, and he immediately rips it open and goes, thanks for the dough! So sometimes there is no way to pass it discreetly. My name's been Greg Proops. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. This is the smartest man in the world, Proopcast. We'll reconvene October 18th at Bar Lubitsch, and then you will have more information when deemed necessary. I love you all. I wish you heaven. Peace. Good night.